what's ironic is that for the last several years, the use of drugs for anti-anxiety and sleep disorders have been going down. But in that month alone, we've seen the use of anti-anxiety drugs increase by 34%, antidepressants by almost 19%, and sleep disorder by 15%. And so we understand that this is hitting people really, really hard. Welcome to the next big thing in health, a podcast from America's health insurance plans. I'm your co-host, Matt Isles. And I'm Laura Evans. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Teladoc Health, partnering with health insurance providers to transform how members access healthcare. Teladoc Health works with leading health insurance providers, hospitals and health systems, and employers to ensure reliable access to high-quality virtual healthcare anytime and from anywhere. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP to learn more. Teladoc Health is proud to serve not only our health insurance and employer members around the world, but also our provider partners who are bringing our technology and physician capacity to bear at a time when the healthcare system is experiencing unprecedented disruption. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP and download our brochure to learn how we partner with health insurance providers to transform healthcare together. Today, our guest is Dr. Steve Miller. He's the Chief Clinical Officer for Cigna. Dr. Miller is a nationally recognized advocate for greater access, affordability, and excellence in healthcare. And he leads all of Cigna's clinical policy, quality, and performance efforts. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time. I was just going to say, Steve, I mean, you've had such an amazing career uh, in healthcare and obviously a very uh, experienced and accomplished physician working in the pharmacy area now as part of Cigna. I mean, how did you get um, involved in healthcare and what was your uh, leading interest and passion to, to, to make a career out of healthcare. Yeah, so uh, back many, many years ago, you used to have these six-year medical schools where you could go straight from high school to medical school. And uh, I went, to high, went straight from high school into medical school, uh, became incredibly engrossed with what I was doing, so did training in internal medicine, uh, nephrology, cardiology, and oncology. Uh, ended up being a transplant nephrologist at Washington University and essentially was a bench scientist. So I had an NIH-sponsored lab, but also had a big clinical responsibility and teaching responsibility. And then over time, I ended up with administrative responsibility. I became the vice president and chief medical officer for Washington University in Barnes-Jewish. And WashU has one of the largest practices in the United States. Uh, and then 15 years ago was recruited to Express Scripts, which at the time was a fairly small company with about 12 million members. And we grew it to over 80 million members. And then when Cigna bought us, uh, I thought at my advanced age, they'd put me out to pasture. But uh, David Cordani uh, asked me to stay on. So I'm the chief medical officer for both Cigna and Express Scripts. Wow, that's quite a career and quite a career path. Uh, sounds pretty intense, but in your younger days. 
Yeah, you know, I was really fortunate. I, uh, I, you know, fit is really an important thing, and I just fell in love with what I was doing, and uh, I am now consider myself kind of a healthcare groupie. I just love uh, what we can do for people, and I actually think it's really relevant to where we are today because I truly believe we have one of the most innovative systems in the world, and we're going to innovate our way out of this problem. I completely agree that we are going to innovate our way out of this because we do have a, an amazing healthcare system, complicated, and we know it's not perfect, but we've also never faced a challenge like this. I mean, first, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've been affected personally by the coronavirus pandemic, and then more importantly even, right, how are you helping to lead uh, your uh, colleagues at Cigna through this challenging time. I mean, it really is nothing like we've ever seen, even for people who have worked in healthcare for decades. Yeah, so Cigna, as you know, is actually a global company, and we actually have 1,500 contractors in Wuhan. So we've actually been involved with the corona outbreak since January. Our second biggest international market is actually South Korea. So we have actually been dealing with the coronavirus as it has traveled across the world, which has really been somewhat beneficial to us in that we were already engaged when it got to the United States in, uh, you know, in a big way. And so we've been running a corona command center uh, that I have been chairing for the last almost two months. And then on a personal note, my wife is actually the chairman of medicine at Washington University and is a very well-known infectious disease doctor. She's on the board of the Infectious Disease Society of America. And so I have an unfair advantage in that <laughs> I have some of the best uh, epidemiology and infection control advice at my hand and uh, have a big company that's hopefully making a big impact for how we're going to handle the coronavirus, not only for our employees, but also for our patients and the companies we represent. So Dr. Miller, we're certainly navigating new waters here. Um, I'm sure you've been down some of this road, you know, before in, in some regard, but you know, what I'm curious, what are some of the concerns that you're hearing um, from some of the people you, who you are covering? Um, how also are Cigna and, and Express Scripts addressing these concerns, how are you handling this um, kind of new new path? Yeah, well, that's a really great question. And as you know, it actually goes all the way from the individual. So we've had, you know, individuals infected and we've had deaths to, you know, major corporations that are facing large number of layoffs and how they're actually going to even survive and stay in business. So we really have this perspective from the smallest important, you know, frontline all the way through uh, companies, healthcare systems, and others. And so it's just a uh, massive undertaking. And if you let it overwhelm you, you can't, but we really have a very committed workforce. And so we are trying to put in place things, and we can talk about over the next few minutes, uh, things directly for patients to make sure they're getting the care they need and have the financial security they need and the peace of mind they need, all the way to how are we going to help our customers, our uh, businesses uh, open again and get this economy rolling again. And so 
it's really quite an undertaking, but we really have a talented group that's addressing it at every single level. What would you say are among your top concerns that you're hearing? Well, you know, for the individual patient, the fear that's out there is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, trying to make people aware of the things they could actually do. So you're not a victim here. That is, you know, the social distancing really makes a huge difference. The hand washing makes a difference. The, uh, you know, keeping surfaces clean, covering your cough. And so we have been out there delivering that message to our people. But we've also, as you know, have been very aggressive about giving them peace of mind. So that means not only making this financially affordable for them by, you know, dropping co-pays for both testing and treatment, mm -hmm. but also making sure that we have really staffed up for virtual care. We've staffed up for behavioral health care. And so we're trying to surround them with every service we can think of to help them get through this with the least amount of disruption as possible. Obviously, it's huge disruption no matter what, but we want them to have the peace of mind that they're going to have the health care they need. And then it's all the way to when you think about our providers. Providers are in two camps right now. You have providers that are on the front line who are fearful of getting infected, but even more fearful of bringing that infection home to their family, to other providers who are just out of business because they can't operate under the current environment and they're still having to make rent and payroll, and they're turning to us saying, what can you do to help keep us afloat? So it's really remarkable, the variability of what we face every single day. So maybe let's start with the, the patient-consumer perspective, because as you mentioned, uh, Steve, right, the way that individuals are, are dealing and managing through um, this crisis is is so variable, and and each person is is dealing with it a little bit differently. <clears throat> and and Cigna uh, made a a very big decision uh, a couple of weeks ago to be uh, a leader by waiving consumer cost sharing and co-payments for COVID nineteen treatment. Right, and that I think to your point around peace of mind uh, will provide huge peace of mind to individuals and not have to worry about those costs if, you know, God forbid, they do get affected by the virus. What went into that decision? I mean, what, what brought Cigna to that place? Yeah, so one of the great things about working for Cigna is we truly live our values. And so when we were addressing this and we went to our executive leadership team and to David Cordani, our CEO, and we said, we want to waive the copay for testing, which was the first thing. We wanted to eliminate barriers for people being diagnosed. And, you know, the our executive leadership team and David said, how much is this going to cost? And we said, we're not sure yet. <laughs> and they said, but it's the right thing to do. And so that decision took truly minutes to make. Uh, we knew it was the right thing to do. We had to take down those barriers to people getting diagnosed because if we're going to get this under control, we got to diagnose people quickly. We got to identify their contacts. We got to get those people into quarantine. And so in an effort to really stem the tide, we made that decision truly within minutes. And when it came to even providing for uh, relieving the copay for treatment, it was a similar discussion. And so we are working on the modeling to understand exactly what it's going to cost. But the reality was we made those decisions even without knowing it at the time because it's the right thing to do and we really have to move quickly if we as a country are going to uh, 
you know, get uh, this uh, pandemic under control. And as you know, the company then took it to the whole industry and the support across the industry was pretty extraordinary because people understood it was the right thing to do. It really has been extraordinary to see the way that the industry has, has stepped up at this time in so many levels. And certainly the actions by Cigna um, and a leadership role that you're playing has been an incredible contributor to those efforts. Keeping it uh, focused really on the sort of individual and the patient, we know that one of Cigna's uh, signature efforts is fighting loneliness, right? And, and that was before uh, social distancing, uh, that the focus by Cigna on loneliness and how it can lead to other um, downstream health implications. Um, how are you looking at loneliness now alongside COVID-19 and the epidemic and the distancing that we're having with friends and family? Um, what kind of resources to do uh, Cigna have for, for your members? Yeah, Matt, that's really a great question because people are not really concentrating on that, but that is a huge crisis going into this pandemic. And then you can only imagine how much worse it's gotten with the pandemic. And in fact, just yesterday, we released a, a report called America's State of Mind, in which we looked at from February 16th to March 15th, what's happened with the use of uh, drugs for anti-anxiety, anti-depression, and sleep disorders. And what's ironic is that for the last several years, the use of drugs for anti-anxiety and sleep disorders have been going down. But in that month alone, We've seen the use of anti-anxiety drugs increase by 34%, antidepressants by almost 19%, and sleep disorder by 15%. And so we understand that this is hitting people really, really hard. And at Cigna, we have a phenomenal behavioral health group who is actually really ramped up to make sure that we can take care of the patients and their emotional needs. So it's not just at the individual patient level, we have an EAP program uh, to assist whole companies in doing this. We have actually bereavement programs and others and even caregiver programs. And so we're trying to meet the patients where they need to be met. And right now it's much more virtual, uh, but we're trying to really take care of their behavioral needs because it was great before this and it's even greater after and it's gonna have a very long tail to it. As the global leader in virtual care, Teladoc Health offers the only comprehensive solution that spans telehealth, behavioral health, and complex and chronic care at scale. Teladoc Health's flexible technology platform expands physician capacity and enables health insurance providers to overcome one of their biggest challenges, scaling to address the broad spectrum of healthcare needs across commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid populations. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP and download our brochure to find out how virtual care is helping health insurance providers overcome their biggest challenges. So Dr. Miller, talking about, um, you know, what can we do about all of this? What's, what's the next step in terms of treatments and vaccinations and um, the potential for all of that? Finding a treatment, let's talk about that first. 
for COVID-19, what works. Can you give us a little bit of insight on what is working possibly and where can patients look for reputable information about treatments, about potential medications? Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the medications in the vaccinations and let's put them in different buckets. So there's one bucket where we're trying to look at to reuse old drugs that are on the marketplace because these would be the quickest we could get to the marketplace and you've heard a lot about the anti-malarials. Uh, and then there are drugs specifically being designed for the treatment of COVID. There's drugs being designed for treating the complications of COVID and then there's vaccination. So we'll walk through all four of those buckets. When it comes to repurposing drugs, obviously the most popular you've heard about is hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, this old anti-malarial drug. And we've had 50 years of use of these drugs or more. Many patients with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis are on these drugs chronically. We've actually worked across the industry with the other health plans to look to see, can we see a signal that these drugs actually are either preventative or alter the course. And that study is winding up now. Uh, but uh, we have also at Cigna actually worked with a leading university, Washington University, to do a randomized trial of four different arms of these anti-malarial drugs. So we have chloroquine, chloroquine with azithromycin, uh, hydroxychloroquine and hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin. So no patient gets placebo, but it allows us to do a randomized trial to truly ferret out, do these drugs work? And if so, what is the optimal regimen? Now I'll be very frank, uh, the data that has propelled the use of these is very soft. And so while many of us are hopeful they'll work, you know, I, you uh, have to take that with a grain of salt because uh, the, cu the current data that suggests these things are going to work is really, really thin. And so we're all waiting for the results of these trials, which should be available to us actually in the coming days and weeks. In fact, and there are side today, effects, you're as I understand here. It. Yeah, the trouble is, as you know, is that many of the patients that are hit the hardest are elderly. And elderly with heart disease actually tolerate these drugs a little less well. And so we're seeing with massive use of these drugs way more cardiac complications than you normally would. Mm -hmm. And so those are repurposing drugs. And then you have drugs that were being designed for coronavirus. Uh, so many people have heard about the Gilead product, remdesivir. Uh, there are clinical trials going on with that. Again, those should read out in the next couple of weeks to months. And then there are new drugs being developed for this. And I've never seen the pharmaceutical and biotech industry rally so much mm. uh, to get a product in the marketplace. So I'm very hopeful that you know, during this summer, we're going to see something that may change the course of this, which truly is a game changer because if you could make the disease less severe, it would give people a lot more peace of mind to leave their homes. The final ask, group is obviously you, the vaccine. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, let me ask you a quick follow-up to that because what kinds of challenges are we facing with trying to develop something so quickly, get it to such a, a mass amount of patients so quickly and in such large quantities? Yeah, so that's why the repurposing old drugs is so great. You don't even have to go through the FDA. All you have to do is increased production of the product. But if that doesn't work out and you have to develop a new drug, 
the FDA has been working tirelessly to actually change the regulatory environment so that new products can come to the market much quicker. That's what you're seeing when they're evaluating remdesivir right now, the Gilead product. It has not been FDA approved, but has been giving in compassionate use and in study designs. And so the data is being accumulated at a pace that I've never seen before in the 40 years I've been in the industry. And so everyone is rowing the boat in the same direction, and they're doing it not just domestically, but internationally. And so I'm very optimistic that you're going to be able to see things that actually could change the, the game uh, even as early as this summer or fall. The one thing I did want to talk about, though, was vaccines. Everyone, you know, uh, you don't get back to normal until you actually have herd immunity to this. And herd immunity only occurs with either a huge number of people being infected or a huge number of people being vaccinated. You know, historically, it takes years to develop a new vaccine and get it to the marketplace. Uh, this is actually the most extraordinary scientific effort I've ever seen. You have over 70 companies involved. You have products that got into clinical trials in just 42 days. You have the Gates Foundation and others looking to actually ramp up production even before they know if a product is effective. And so this approach is really unique and will probably shave literally months, if not years, off of getting a vaccine into the marketplace. Uh, but that still is delayed till after the first of the year, probably. So hopefully we'll have drugs that will modify the course over the summer or fall, and we'll have vaccines early next year. Uh, and hopefully we'll bring this to an end much sooner than uh, would normally have happened. So, Steve, you, you mentioned as part of the um, effort to get uh, immunity around this, right? Herd immunity either through vaccinations or there are enough people who unfortunately get infected. You know, there's been a lot of attention paid recently around the role of uh, antibody testing and serology. How do you think about the role of, of antibody testing in terms of whether it's getting the economy back to work uh, and people back on their jobs or just generally from a sort of healthcare context? Yeah, so I think that there's a tremendous amount of confusion and misinformation out there right now. So antibody testing is you, you look in some, it's a blood test, and I look to see have you developed antibodies against the uh, coronavirus. Now, remember, there are lots of coronaviruses out there. This is a specific coronavirus. And so you want to make sure your antibody test is highly specific to this coronavirus. Because for you to have antibodies to a coronavirus that's a typical seasonal, you know, uh, respiratory infection will be irrelevant to this. Importantly, you also want that antibody to be what's called a neutralizing antibody. It has to be able to actually kill the coronavirus. And so it is unclear at this point in time if you develop immunity to this or not. And as you know, there's been a lot of controversial uh, uh, manuscripts out of both Korea and China that say that people may actually be getting reinfected because you may actually not develop a really vigorous immune response. To figure that out is going to actually take several months. The other problem with looking at antibodies 
is if you think about the United States, today we sit at about 650,000 people that have been diagnosed. Let's assume that number is off by tenfold. Let's assume there are six, seven, eight million people that have been infected. That's still only two, three percent of the population, which means 97 percent of the population will still be at risk. So even if I can actually develop antibody tests, I can develop them that they're reliable, sensitive, and specific. I'm still going to have only a very small percentage of the population that's been exposed and that's immune. And so you can't turn on the economy based on just two, three percent. You're going to have to have a different strategy. So antibody testing is going to be really crucial, but it's going to be crucial months from now, not in the next several days or weeks. So Dr. Miller, there's a huge focus right now, as you know, on supporting healthcare heroes on the front lines. Um, those healthcare heroes who are, you know, treating patients and working to fight the pandemic. Curious what steps health insurance providers have taken to support the doctors and nurses, hospital personnel on the front line. What your thoughts are about that? Yeah, so these people are truly, you know, risking their lives every day to help take care of each and every one of us. And so they truly are heroes. And we, have to, we are trying to do everything we can to eliminate barriers to make their jobs easier. So we have relaxed a lot of the rules around prior authorization, utilization management, how frequently patients can refill their prescriptions. We have loosened up criteria on trying to get patients discharged from the hospital so that we can get more utilization out of existing capacity. So everything we can do that actually decreases their administrative burden, eases their ability to take care of patients and focus on those patients, we're trying to do, uh, take those steps. And so it's crucial to support them so that they actually have the time and the resources to take care of the patients. On top of that, we've been working with everyone else to make sure that there's adequate personal protective equipment. That's the number one issue. Even our employees have pitched in to do uh, mask production. So we're doing, and then on top of that, we have actually freed up literally hundreds of our clinicians We've put those clinicians in telehealth so that they actually can take some of the workload off the frontline uh, nurses and doctors. So we're doing everything from making personal protective equipment to easing the administrative burden to doing a lot of the care through virtual health. And then on top of it, we actually developed a technology with Bowie Health that screens patients that think they may have exposure or may have COVID. And that tool has been phenomenal in that we've been able to screen tens of thousands of patients and keep those patients out of emergency rooms, out of the hospitals, out of doctor's offices, and give them the peace of mind that they're being well taken care of. And so we're trying to be as innovative as possible, as innovative as the pharmaceutical companies are, we're trying to be as innovative on the payment side and the reduction of administrative burden. So that's been a, a stunning deployment of resources and innovation. You've talked about the pharmaceutical uh, company resources, what health insurance providers are doing, um, all to address the impact of coronavirus. You know, one of the big areas we know, at least in terms of providing access, has been around telehealth and, and mobile uh, medicines, especially as we want to keep people out of the 
uh, ER out of uh, physicians offices. So which of these innovations do you think are going to stick with providers the most after this pandemic? And uh, the title of this podcast is The Next Big Thing in Health. What do you think the next big thing in health is after the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, so uh, what's really uh, interesting about this is, as you know, many of us have been trying to push telehealth for quite a while because we know that patients want to be met where they want to be met. Oftentimes, you don't want to actually have to take time off from work or time away from family to go to a, a physician visit if you thought you could do it telephonically. And so uh, many of us have built out these capabilities, but the uptake of it was really slow. Now that patients are experiencing it, they're actually really appreciating it. And so I think one of the things that will stick and that actually will grow will be remote healthcare. And so it allows you to get to communities that previously are underserved. It allows you to keep people where they wanna be in their cubicle, home or office. And so I think telehealth is here to stay, and I think it's going to be a huge benefit. It's one of the silver linings of this pandemic is I think telehealth is really going to be an important aspect going forward. But there's other things that actually have turned out to be incredibly useful. We have a whole panel of tools for remote monitoring, being the blood sugars, uh, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your heart rhythm, uh, even your temperature. Having these devices deployed has made it so that we can actually do more comprehensive care remotely. And so having, we have literally hundreds of over 100,000 diabetics who were remotely monitoring their blood sugar every day with them, which is helping them stay out of clinics, hospitals, and doctor's offices, but also get better care at a lower cost. And so that's another innovation that was already underway, but has been highlighted by this pandemic. A third one is actually a lot of people are really discovering uh, mail-order pharmacy for the first time. You know, you want that longer fill, you want that 90-day supply so that you have the peace of mind that you have medication in hand, but importantly, you want to be able to stay at home and not have to go into a pharmacy uh, where you may encounter other sick people. And so the growth in mail-order pharmacy has truly been extraordinary during this. And so I think when you look at these things collectively, this is going to leave us with a platform that's going to provide better healthcare at a lower cost, but importantly, more convenient, more of the way patients want to be treated for the future. You know, when you think about it, you love these new technologies. When you go to the airport, do you want to talk to the travel agent or do you want to use the kiosk? When you go to the bank, do you want to talk to the teller? Do you want to use the kiosk? The same is true with healthcare. If we can actually give people these tools where they can self-service, where they have more choice, I think this is going to be a great advance for healthcare for the future. Yeah, it is. It is very exciting, Dr. Miller, to hear you say that. And we were talking in, that, in another conversation about, you know, even in clinical trials for cancer, that a lot of cancer patients for the first time are sort of being forced to experiment with the with remote trials having medicine sent to them and having their vitals and um, lab work done um, remotely in, in locations closer to home instead of having to travel so nice to hear the silver lining from all of this um, on, on such a you know kind of crazy time let's let's keep with that positive note here would love to hear about one more inspiring thing that maybe you've witnessed so far um, in light of this pandemic that's maybe giving you some hope 
Yeah, so, you know, I have actually witnessed some extraordinary things. That is, number one is when you look to see, and this is subtle, but it's really been huge. When this country decided to ask people to shelter in place, the response has been extraordinary. When you look at how quickly the epidemic was brought under control, and it was huge in Seattle, in Northern California, truly remarkable. And so states and communities that moved early, that developed shelter in place, who got a great response, have seen unbelievably flattening of the curve. Now, don't get me wrong, flattening of the curve is not the same as driving this to zero. The flattening of the curve was truly a monumental uh, accomplishment for especially countries like ours where we have a democracy and we can't be as autocratic as some of the other countries that have uh, has shown success with this. The other thing is the innovation that's coming out of this is just extraordinary. And like we've said already, it's not just innovation in pharmaceuticals. It's innovation in technology. It's innovation in insurance design. It's innovation in how we're taking care of patients. And I think that when we started this conversation, we talked about we're going to innovate our way out of this. I'm a true believer of this. I am seeing innovation every single day by my company and others. And so I'm really hopeful that what you're going to see is not just that we bring this crisis to an end, but that we're actually going to have a better healthcare system because of it. Love it. Great way to uh, to wrap it up. And Matt, don't you think? I mean, it, it is it is interesting what he said. What is there something that you've seen that's inspiring through all this, Matt? Um, I, I think what's been so inspiring are watching the way that people are celebrating our our healthcare heroes, and yeah. we haven't thought of them in that way until today. But in many cases, they have been on the front lines and and risking their lives for a long time, uh, but it's really uh, taken the uh, pandemic to bring it home about how important the people that wake up every day to go and take care of patients in all kinds of settings, whether it's in the hospital, in nursing homes, um, in pharmacies, really everywhere. I think it's been uh, amazing to witness and to see how the country has come together um, in that way to address a challenge. It's really, so true. it is really inspiring. That's so true. And you know, there's been a nursing shortage for so many years and you wonder if now after all of this, nurses are, are so um, you know celebrated now that we may not see that nursing shortage continue after all this. Let's hope that's the case. So this has been such a great discussion. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time. Virtual care is helping more people access high quality care for a broad range of conditions while avoiding the doctor's office, urgent care, and the emergency room. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP to learn more. Recognizing the critical role that virtual care plays in the delivery system, Teladoc Health helps health insurance providers care for members, including their highest risk populations by offering high quality virtual solutions as the front door to care. Visit teledochealth.com backslash AHIP to download our brochure and learn how virtual care is becoming the preferred entry point into healthcare. 
Thanks again for tuning into this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and remember to leave a rating or review.